Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. This chapter marks a significant shift in the narrative of the life of David. As this chapter opens, we're a little hot. Uh, uh, yeah. um, as this chapter opens, David is at the peak of his reign, politically, militarily, and spiritually, and he runs into Bathsheba, and life is never the same. This is one of these chapters that um, should terrify you because a man after God's own heart, David, who fulfilled the will of God as well as any monarch in history, uh, we see his feet of clay and we look in the mirror and we see our feet of clay. So uh, keep that much in prayer as we go through this. Uh, Rob's going to show you a map of David's kingdom, the extent of his kingdom. This is huge. This is significant. The nation is now unified under David's rule. Uh, the surrounding nations, Edom, Ammon, etc., uh, etc., et have been defeated and are most are paying tribute and taxes to Israel north, south, and east. Of course, west is the Mediterranean, except for the Philistines. The nation is rich with the spoils of conquest. David has been anointed king at age 30 years old. He is now 50. So David is at the peak of his powers uh, as far as a monarch, and for 20 years he has experienced unbroken success. When you read up until this point in his life from 1 Samuel 16 when he was anointed at 12, from age 30 to 50, it's success after success after success after success. Unfortunately, Unmitigated success is not an unmixed blessing. This success has led to spiritual neglect, which of course is what produced the disaster in 2 Samuel uh, 11. It behooves us to remember Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, lest he fall. People with their noses in the air with pride usually trip over their feet. Yes? So at the end of chapter 10, everything seems to be going well. It is just success and uh, victory. And by the end of chapter 11, David will have coveted, stolen, committed adultery, lied, and murdered. All in less than 90 days. So you can, far, you can fall farther than you can imagine, faster than you can dream possible. The narrator organizes a story around David. There's a plot. There's actually three acts in this drama. Act one is David and Bathsheba. Act two is David and her husband Uriah. And act three in chapter 12 is David and God. So the context is Israel is currently at war with Ammon. Rob's going to show you a map of Ammon. They're just east across the Jordan River, a small kingdom. Uh, the capital of their, of their uh, city is Rabbah. That is today Amman. Straight across the Jordan today is the country of Jordan. And the same city, the same site, they called it Rabbah back then, it is now Amman, the capital. And that's exactly where Joab and the army is. Chapter 11 takes place in Jerusalem. In the springtime of the following year, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. So far, so good. The last five words of that verse are very telling. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Here's the principle. Like cancer, sin starts small. 
Left unchecked, it will grow until it consumes you. Like cancer, sin starts small. Left unchecked, it will grow until it consumes you. Now, weather has always often played a significant factor in warfare. For generations, battles always began in the spring when the weather was warmer and there was enough green fodder for the animals, horses, oxen, and things of that nature. Snow, mud, rain, sleet, hail are not conducive to victory. As a matter of fact, bad weather can kill more soldiers than the enemy. So wars have traditionally started in the spring and ended before winter. And that is still largely true today, even though we have a lot of technology that helps that. So in the context today, they're at war with Ammon. Joab and the army have traveled across the Jordan River 40 miles to the east, and they resume the fight they left off in chapter 10. Everyone went to fight except David. He is on vacation when he should be working. For millennia, the primary external job description of a king has been to lead his armies into battle. For a king, failing to fight is dereliction of duty. David is gone AWOL. Death and defeat often happen when you forget your primary job. Years ago, Herb Cain wrote a column for the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'm sure you all have heard it. Here's what he said. Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows that it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning a lion wakes up. It knows that it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you're a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. It seems that 20 years of unbroken success have led David into pride and self-indulgence. Because the David of the desert is not the David of the palace. He's been in the palace for a couple of decades. Hard times create dependent people. In the desert, David was completely dependent on the Lord for his survival, day in, day out, being pursued by Saul. If he didn't rely on the Lord for protection, strength, wisdom, and guidance, he was subject to death. In the palace, David has gotten very used to being large and in charge. And he has now grown to the point where King David is accountable to no one. He has also gotten very used to a long history of sexual indulgence. As of this writing, he has at least seven wives we know about and somewhere upwards of ten concubines. David has also gotten very soft with abundance and luxury. Joab and the troops are camping in open fields, putting the city of Rabbah under siege. And David thinks, why would you go sleep in an open field with the troops and eat sea rations when your chef can cook whatever you like and you get to sleep in your own bed? The progression of this sin, of all sin, is stated in James 1. We're going to track this. James 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his or her own lust. Don't go blaming the devil for most of what you do. Look in the mirror. It is your own lust. Verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So we have the progression of sin. Sin begins like a small crack in a dam and grows until the dam breaks and floods your life with destruction. In 1976, Teton Dam in Idaho burst and uh, flooded, killed 11 people, flooded 300 square miles. And uh, no one saw it. But when it started to break, it was too late. So the moral erosion in David's life has been going on for years. It just wasn't visible. We need to track the state of our moral capacity day by day with the Lord. Verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. 
you're going to notice some things when you read this narrative. There's only five verses that describe this. What should David have been doing during the day? Working, fighting, exactly. What was he doing? Napping or sleeping. For the king of a nation that is at war, he is at the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong things. Number one, he shouldn't be in Jerusalem. He should be on the battlefield. Number two, if he is in Jerusalem, he should be working at the day during the day, not sleeping during the day. So David's palace is built on the highest point in the city of Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know there's a lot of hills there. Well, his was on the high point of the old city of Jerusalem. And he has all the... the Houses had flat rooftop patios. People would go up there to catch the evening breeze. And so he's at the highest point in the city, and he can look down on everyone's house in the city at this point. So he's got a good view of everybody below him. And from up above, he could look into not only the houses, he could look into their private enclosed private courtyards. Every one of these houses had a courtyard in between. And he noticed a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. Very beautiful here is literally the word striking. So it describes people of striking appearance. And this phrase is used to describe people like Rebecca, Vashti, Esther, etc. There's no indication in this text that she was doing anything provocative or unusual. She was actually in her own house when David saw her. She was in her own courtyard. As a matter of fact, it was in the evening at dusk, almost at sundown, when she was bathing. She was going through a ritual purification. It was the end of her menstrual cycle. This was very much a delineated process in the Mosaic Law. She was minding her own business. Matter of fact, David might have had to look very hard to see what he was interested in seeing. There wasn't a lot of sunlight at that point. Matter of fact, David might have brought her in the palace because he hadn't seen everything he wanted to see. But instead of running away from sexual temptation like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife, David runs towards it. David is like a fish that is lunging toward a beautiful lure that is attached to a hook. Verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? By the way, accidentally seeing a beautiful woman bathing is not a sin. There's a major difference between temptation and sin. Billy Graham once said, The first look is free. It's the second look that will kill you. Martin Luther once said, it's not wrong for a bird to fly over your head. Just don't let it build a nest in your hair. <laughs> Same principle. David saw Bathsheba by accident, but he stared at her by design. He is now becoming enticed and being carried away by his own lust. Because once lust takes over, you are stuck on stupid. You know that, don't you? When you are in lust, your brain is not working. He was enticed enough to describe her to his messengers and find out her identity. So he sent messengers, I want to know about who this woman is. I don't know if he told them how he saw her or where her house was, but he was interested enough to pursue it. He's already over the line. The messenger's answer was a warning to David and should have ended the matter right away because she is Bathsheba and she is what? Married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, married means what? No trespassing, no fishing, red lights, siren blaring, bridge out, cliff ahead. You get the picture? Turn around and what do they tell us in kindergarten? Walk away, right? Uriah, his name means Yahweh is my light. And this guy, Uriah, is very well known to David. Uriah is one of David's elite commando force. They called them the mighty men. There were only 30 of them, and Uriah is one of them. He is one of David's delta force. There's only 30 warriors in that group. He came to Israel from a foreign land, became a proselyte, converted to Judaism, 
married an Israelite woman, and he is a war hero in David's army, and he's married to the woman that David is in lust over. She's not only married, she's the daughter of Eliam. Eliam is another of his Delta Force commandos. They're both Eliam and Uriah, father-in-law and son-in-law in David's Green Berets. Furthermore, she's the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel is David's chief advisor, almost like his secretary of state. Ahithophel is considered the wisest man in the land. As a matter of fact, when Ahithophel spoke, it says it was as if God was speaking. Bathsheba is his granddaughter. David's sin is going to hurt a lot of people. You know, it's useful. When you're tempted to sin, it's a good idea to think about the people that your sin will hurt. Any sin. Your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, your church, your testimony, your ministry, the lost. Most important, your relationship with God himself. Here's a principle I didn't write down. Sin always creates losses. Never gains. Sin always creates losses. I talked to a guy 30 years ago. And he and his wife were on the outs and had been for some time. We're thinking about getting divorced. I said, well, what, what's your conclusion at this point? He said, well, we sat down and made a list of the people that it would harm. And we came up with about a thousand names and we thought it probably wasn't worth it. Wow. You think your sin only impacts you. Not true. There is a ripple effect, a social ripple effect, and when we sin, we impact a lot of people. David's sin is going to devastate the nation because it's going to devastate his own home. Verse 4. We've got lust, and we're going to get to sin and death. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Here's the principle. You cannot stand and fight sexual temptation. If you do not flee, you will surely fall. You cannot stand and fight. You can stand and fight a lot of temptations. Sexual temptation is not one you can stand and fight because your own body will betray you. You have a traitor in the camp. It's your own flesh. This word took, he took her, it literally means he collected her. There was no pretense of secrecy here. He sent his people to pick her up and bring her in. Now, this is abuse of power beyond comprehension, and we see it today almost every day, don't we? Power gets abusive. David abused his royal power. He wasn't interested in marriage. He wasn't interested in a relationship. He was interested in the one-night stand. Everyone in David's palace who was involved knew exactly what was going on. He sent messengers out to bring her in. This wasn't a secret. This was stuck on stupid. And it was sin. Bathsheba had little to no say in the matter. You know, when you, when you look at the Hollywood version of this, and there's a, a lot of Hollywood movies, it really portrays Bathsheba in many ways as a seductress. An exhibitionist. She was bathing in the open and David saw her. That's not true. There is no biblical indictment of Bathsheba ever. Only David. Bathsheba has no moral indictment from Scripture whatsoever. And we think, well, she should have filed a lawsuit, called her attorney, you know. <laughs> Women had no legal standing at that point in time, and he was the king. You want to know how we know this? 20 years later, when he's ready to anoint his son Solomon, it says Bathsheba came into his bedroom and bowed down because he was the king and they'd been married for 20 years. Gentlemen, it ain't going to happen in your house. <laughs> says you. I'll talk to Carolyn later. We'll see about that. So the seeds of this sin were planted decades before. The moral erosion in David's life had been progressing for a long time before. 
First of all, David had violated God's command that Israel's kings were not to multiply wives. Deuteronomy 17, don't multiply horses, don't multiply gold, and don't multiply wives. And David did the first two and violated the last one. He has now multiple wives and concubines. The problem is David has a giant in his life and this giant is called lust. And this giant lust is a lot stronger than Goliath. David has not fought this giant lust. He has fed this giant lust. David has acquired sexual partners in abundance, but lust is never satisfied. Ever. And I don't care what your lust is. It doesn't have to be to sex. It could be to food. It could be for human praise. It could be for fitness. It could be for fill in the blanks. Here's a definition of lust. This one's free. Lust is any desire that you cannot fulfill inside the will of God. Write it down. Lust is any desire that you cannot fulfill inside the will of God. If you can fulfill it inside the will of God, it's not lust. David has a giant lust. He wants to acquire sexual partners outside of God's will. I read this this week and it made enormously good sense to me. Lust is not like hunger that you can satisfy by feeding it. Lust is like a forest fire that becomes more inflamed when you feed it. Does that make sense? The only way to deal with lust is to starve it to death and crucify it and lay it down at the cross. And David didn't do that. He fed it. David, just like Adam and Eve, coveted the one thing that God had forbidden. They coveted forbidden fruit, and David coveted and took another man's wife, even though he had, as near as we can tell, about 18 partners already. You would think, how much is enough? Lust never has enough, ever. David refused to be content with what God had provided. God gave Adam one wife, and he gave Eve one husband, and Satan had used the same technique on Eve that he used with, with uh, David. You know, Eve looked at the tree and she says she perceived that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. She saw the tree that it was the delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes. We know what David's doing. And she believed Satan's lie that eating the fruit would make her wise like God, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Satan has used those three temptations since the Garden of Eden, and those are the only three he will ever use because they work. Those are the three gateways that he will tempt us with. We know that. We should not be surprised. Scripture tells us that. In the same way as Eve, David saw, he desired, and he took, and it produced death and destruction. Now, the Hebrew text is a very interesting way. It says that Bathsheba has just completed the ritual purification that was required following her menstrual cycle. You know what he's telling you? She's physically ready to conceive. Verse 5. Surprise, surprise. The woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, for several weeks after this event... I'm sure David thought that he got away with it. His sin was undetected, but things are going to get really complicated because she is now pregnant. Moses told the children of Israel, be sure your sin will find you out. It's just a matter of when. Things are going to get very complicated because Bathsheba's husband Uriah is away at war. So he can't possibly be the husband because he's not on site, right? Here's the other problem. In Israel, adultery was a capital crime. It was not tolerated. If you'd committed adultery, they stoned you to death. Bathsheba was subject to that stoning and the baby she was carrying would die as well. You know, it's easy to condemn David's behavior. We're looking at it going, well, this is just obvious. Yeah, it is obvious. But it's essential that we examine our, our own hearts as well. You know, the truth of it is, not one of us in this room is immune to any sin at any time. There is no sin in Scripture that is listed that, none, that any of us could not do, given the right circumstances. And the sins that we think we're immune to are the ones that we're most likely to fall to. 
Too much palace and not enough desert are lethal to your spiritual growth. Don't pray for more comfort. Pray for more strength to deal with the desert that God puts you in. If Satan can't kill you in combat, he'll choke you with comfort. If he can't discourage you with hardship, he'll distract you with influence, affluence. If David had been busy fighting God's battles, he wouldn't have lost his own battle with lust. As a matter of fact, I wonder if one of the reasons David avoided the battlefield because he didn't want to be celibate that long. None of those other soldiers had their spouses there. It would look pretty bad if the king had his entourage with him. Now that's just my comfort above what God's calling me to do. David gave himself privileges that God had not intended them to have. So now Bathsheba's pregnant. David's going to try some desperate measures to try and cover up his sin. You know, Adam and Eve sinned, and what do they do? They sowed fig leaves. Have you ever seen fig leaves? They're big leaves, but try and sow some fig leaves to put a little modesty around you. That's kind of a fragile prospect, right? <laughs> Moses killed an Egyptian. He tried to do what? Cover it up. Buried him in the sand. Here's the principle. Trying to cover up sin leads to more sin. First, he tells General Joab to send Uriah home from the battlefield. He wants to obtain information about the war. So send you know, Uriah back from the battlefield. Now this, on the face of it, makes no sense at all. You're going to have one of your green berets function like a messenger boy. Not a good plan. Number two, if David was on the battlefield or where he belonged, he'd have first-hand information about this. So he tries to get Uriah, once he's in Jerusalem, to go home and sleep with Bathsheba. Even sends him a little gift. I don't know where it was the Jerusalem Hilton for two or whatever, but he sends, sends a little gift after him. He wants to get Uriah to go sleep with Bathsheba so everyone will think that Uriah is the father of this baby. However, Uriah is far more honorable than David is. Uriah sleeps with his fellow soldiers who are guarding the palace gate. David asks him, how come you didn't go home and sleep with your wife? Now this is getting a little desperate, pretty obvious. Verse 11, Uriah gives him a really good answer. Uriah says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord, the army, are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this. Uriah says, I'm on active duty. Active duty soldiers don't go home. It would be a dereliction of duty. Now, if you're David, this has got to just stab you in the heart because Uriah is far more committed than David is, far more honorable. David's not satisfied with that. He has dinner with Uriah the next night, gets him drunk. Hopefully then when he's in an inebriated state, he'll go home and consummate his relationship with Bathsheba and everyone will think it's the baby. No luck. Uriah didn't go home. David is now so desperate he concocts a scheme to have Uriah killed, but by the Ammonites in battle. It says he writes a sealed letter to Joab, ordering to place Uriah in the front lines right next to the walls of the city they are besieging and then withdraw from him so that the Ammonites will be sure to kill him. David learned this strategy from Saul. 30 years before. Remember when David was an up-and-comer, he was 17, 18. He was really conquering a lot of the Philistines, and Saul wanted to kill him, but Saul didn't want to get his hands dirty doing it, so he kept sending David out to the Philistines, hoping they would do it for him. David kept killing more Philistines. It didn't work. So David is now doing the same strategy with Uriah. Here's what's really cold. He writes the death warrant to Joab, seals it, and then gives it to Uriah to take it back to him. Now, things are falling off the cliff here pretty bad. Joab obeys David, but he's got to know that there's dead fish somewhere. You don't sacrifice one of your Green Beret commandos. What would be so important about that? The scuttlebutt throughout the palace is probably running wild because you know and I know in any palace, in any governmental institution, there are no secrets. 
By the way, you would be wise to live your life in such a way that if it was published on the New York Times tomorrow morning, you wouldn't be embarrassed because ultimately there are no secrets. Assume that everybody knows everything all the time and you'll probably live a more moral life. Right? So Joab places Uriah on the soldiers near the wall where he knows the Ammonites station their best warriors and this is a suicide mission from the beginning. This is why militarily this is stupid. When a city's under siege, you take your soldiers, you surround the city, right? At a safe distance, your only point is no one gets in and no one goes out. You want them to run out of food. You can be 100 yards away from the wall. You just want to make sure no one goes in and go out. Why would you attack a walled fortress and get shot at from the top of the wall? You just wait. It's a waiting game. You're just going to starve them out until they surrender. David says, put him up against the wall. Uriah is killed, and so are the other Israeli soldiers with him. Because if Joab pulled soldiers back from the wall, Uriah would have retreated with him. So Uriah's got to not only die, but Joab has to sacrifice innocent soldiers with Uriah to make it look like Uriah's death was a casualty of war in order to cover up David's sin. You see the tentacles, how sin grows? This thing is like cancer. It's killing a lot of people. It's ensnared Joab as well, and the collateral damage is growing. Joab sends David a message on the update on the war. <clears throat> There's a very interesting verse here. And verse 20, look at verse 20. Joab tells the messenger, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises. Sounds like David's got some anger management issues. We know he's in touch with his feelings, shall we say. Joab anticipates that David's going to blow up over the loss of the soldiers. And he says, here's how you calm him down. Just tell him your servant Uriah is dead too. And he'll come right down. That was the goal. Now, if you're the messenger, you're thinking, this is going to calm him down? Really? So David tells the messenger, go back and tell Joab, no worries. Soldiers dying in battle is just collateral damage, cost of doing business during warfare. Stay at it until you kill him. David is incredibly calloused by sin, and the more sin he gets involved in, the more calloused he becomes. It says when Bathsheba hears of Uriah's death, she goes into a period of mourning, seven days. When that time ends, David marries her, moves her into the palace where she bears him a son. Click, 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 boom. Sounds like a done deal, doesn't it? Sounds like he got away with it. You know, war hero dies. King and pity and magnanimity takes the widow, brings her into the palace for protection and care. Can you see the headlines? Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> the most important verse in this entire chapter is the last phrase of verse 27. Because now you've seen all the human machinations and schemes and plans, and now we get God's perspective. Verse 27c, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now between David and Bathsheba's marriage and the birth of their sons, probably a six or seven month period. Takes a few weeks for Bathsheba to figure out she's pregnant. David does his thing over a pot a couple of weeks. She mourns, so she's probably in the palace within 90 days after their affair. And six to seven months later, somewhere in that neck of the woods, the baby's born. And during that period of time, David is miserable. He is at his low point spiritually, and God is working him over in preparation for his repentance. He writes about it in, verse, in Psalm 32.3. David describes this experience of being alienated from God due to his massive degrees of sin. And it says in Psalm 32.3, When I kept silent about my sin, in other words, when I tried to cover it up, when I tried to conceal it, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Sounds like he didn't have an appetite. Sounds like he was in massive weight loss. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy on me, 
My vitality drained away as with the fever heat of summer. David's sin had what? Separated him from God. And God is bringing the conviction that comes when his children sin. And that guilt is killing him. His unconfessed sin is literally destroying him. Because he's beginning to be aware of the degree to which he has separated from God due to his sin. God in faithfulness sends his Holy Spirit and is showing David during this six month period the depths of his depravity. And David finally begins to see his sin from God's point of view. This is known as the chastening process. When you sin and you do not confess, the Holy Spirit in faithfulness will bring conviction. How many of you experience conviction? I already got it this morning a couple times. I got it in the service a couple times. It's amazing. You can sin anywhere. God's chastening is an act of love. God's chastening is conviction that you are separated from God in some area of your life and you need to make it right. And you make it right through repentance and confession. Confession is agreeing with God, saying what God says about your sin. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God. It's literally a 180 degree U-turn. And that's what God wants David to do. So far, David has refused to do that. And during the six-month period, God is bringing to his mind his sin and prompting him to repent and confess and get right with God. In God's perfect time, right after the birth of their child, God calls Nathan and sends him to David with a message. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, Listen to this story. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. You get the picture? This is a pet. This is a family member. This little lamb lives in the house with them, right? There's a love relationship. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the way Pharaoh had come with him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it, that means slaughtered it, for the man who had come to him. Now, Nathan is both a prophet of God and a personal friend of David. Nathan knows God well and Nathan knows David well. And therefore he is very, going to be very effective to speak God's word to David's heart. And he has been prepared to do this. This is not ad lib. David, Nathan has thought this through. This story is actually an incredibly effective word picture for a shepherd because David has carried a lot of little baby lambs around. He understands affection for lambs and for sheep. A shepherd would get this picture instantly and emotionally. Kings were often the final arbiters of justice. As a matter of fact, they were the final arbiters of justice and they often heard cases as judges. David thinks that Nathan is presenting an actual case to him. Nathan doesn't say, here's a story, what do you think? He presents it and David thinks it's an actual case that's going to require his judgment. He's got a rich guy in his kingdom, he's got a poor guy in his kingdom, and the rich guy steals the one thing the poor guy has and sacrifices it and gives. So this is an actual case from David's standpoint. And so he pronounces judgment on this case without realizing that he's pronouncing judgment on himself. <clears throat> verse 5. We know David is in touch with his feelings because he says in verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Wow. Steal a lamb? We're going to kill you. David obviously is angry. His anger flares up. He pronounces the death sentence on the rich man for his theft and his lack of compassion. Verse 6, he says, well, what does the Mosaic law say? He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and did not have compassion. Exodus 22 specifies that if you do steal something, you have to restore it fourfold, right? David still doesn't get 
that the story is about him. So Nathan now springs God's trap on David that will reveal David's sin from God's perspective. Given the fact that David is angry from time to time and he has killed a lot of people, this required tremendous courage on Nathan's part. Right? <clears throat> when God calls you to speak truth and love to a friend, you're probably your life is not on the line. But David could have killed Nathan. Nathan's operating in the power of the Holy Spirit and by obedience. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things than these. Here's the principle. God is a generous God. Is that not true? <clears throat> the cure for coveting is contentment with whatever God provides. The cure for coveting is contentment with whatever God provides. David's pride had convinced him that he had the right to take whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, from whomever he wanted. David is the man who has many sheep, He's got many wives. He's got many concubines. What does he do? He goes to Uriah, the poor man who has one spouse, and he takes that one and kills her husband. I've often thought, did Bathsheba ever figure out that David had arranged for the death of her husband? That would kind of change the nature of a relationship, right? You would think. David is so enslaved to his wealth and power that he steals without conscience from this poor man named Uriah. God says, look, I've given you much and I had much more to give you, but you wanted what I had forbidden. God is not a stingy God. By the way, one of Satan's greatest lies to you when he tempts you is that God is not a good God. If God were really good, he would give you what you want. How many times has God given you what you begged for, finally, and you got it, and then you figured out it really wasn't what you wanted? That ever happened to any of you? So when God says no, it's an act of love, just like when you tell your child, no, don't play with a pet rattlesnake, no, don't go play in the freeway, that is an act of love. So when God says no, it's an act of love. God only gives good gifts to his children. Here's something to, provide, to write down. <clears throat> Whatever God provides is exactly what I need. You know what you need? Exactly what God provides. You have right now exactly what you need. Because God has provided it. Do we understand why he has provided it? No. That's why we walk by faith. But he's a good God. He's a father who gives what his children need. But David was discontented with what God provided. Verse 9. God says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the word of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And David said to Nathan, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is also born to you shall surely die. Here's the principle. This is a hard one. Sin, even though forgiven, creates consequences that can last a lifetime. Sin, even though forgiven, creates consequences that can last a lifetime. The best illustration I've ever heard of this one is, story is told of a little boy that has a bad temper. 
His father gave him a bag of nails and a hammer and told him that every time he lost his temper to go to the back fence in their yard and hammer a nail into the fence. It didn't take very long for the fence to be filled with nails. Over time, the little boy discovered that it was easier to hold his temper than keep hammering nails. So his father told him to pull one nail out of the fence for every day that he didn't lose his temper. After months and months and months and months, all the nails were gone. His father took him out of the fence and said, You have done well, my son, but look at the fence. It will always bear the holes and the scars of your anger. One of the hardest things for us to comprehend is the devastation of sin's consequences, even though forgiven. We are all going to heaven because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But the consequences of our sin, God oftentimes will let us live with to remind us. We need to go to the back fence and look at the holes in that back fence. Every time you're thinking about sinning, go to the back fence. Rub a little scar tissue on your body you got from the last time you sinned to remember it's not worth it. Sin always creates losses. Always. It is never worth it. God uses a very interesting word. He accuses David of despising his word. And I never really understood what despise was till this week. Despise means to treat as valueless. It means to treat as having no weight. It means to treat as insignificant. When you despise something, you treat it as unworthy of honor, unworthy of respect. You treat it as valueless. It says that Esau despised his birthright. He treated it as nothing, just nothing. Right? Sin always treats God as having no value. And now David confesses his sin and repents, and God assures David that God has taken away the guilt of his sin. You know how he tells David, here's how you know that God has taken away the guilt of your sin? Because he hasn't killed you yet. He says you're still alive. He hasn't taken your life. And I read that and I started shaking. And I thought, whoa, if God was only just and not merciful, we would all be dead. Instantly. So if we still have life in our sinful state, we have been given mercy. What we do not deserve because we sin every day. God is so gracious to us. God is full of grace and mercy. He desires to forgive. He brought conviction to David's life, not to punish him so much as to bring him back in relationship with him so that David would confess. Interesting, David says, number one, I have sinned against the Lord. He understood that the sin is always primarily against God. Yes, it's sin against each other. I understand that. Yes, it's sin against other people, but it's primarily always sin against God. David understood that. The hard part, though, is to even though the guilt of sin is gone, the consequences are not. God says, because you have used violence to murder Uriah and violate his wife, your wives will be violated by your companion, turns out to be his son Absalom, and violence is going to follow your family throughout. We're going to see that in the coming weeks. Four of David's sons die, three of them by the sword, because David used the sword against Uriah. So the punishment does fit the crime. So when you, you look at this lesson, you say, okay, what's the point? Well, I think there's a lot of points. Number one, I guess the big meta picture is that none of us are immune to any sin at any time. We're all vulnerable. Moral erosion can occur at any point in time. As a matter of fact, it always does. As a matter of fact, if you compare sin with cancer, understand that all of you are carrying cancer. Every single one of you are carrying cancer. It hasn't been detected yet if it hasn't because your body's defense mechanisms have checked it and kept it in line. 
Once your body's defense mechanisms are overwhelmed, then you get a diagnosis of cancer, and cancer is a, obviously a met, metastation of, of uh, cells that you don't want to grow. Same with sin. All of us carry sin. We still have it. But are we daily confessing? Are we daily repenting? Are we daily asking the Holy Spirit to turn the spotlight on our life and show us the sins that we do not yet see so we can deal with them when they're small? If you wait until the sin is obvious, the cure is painful, right? The bigger the tumor grows, the more radical the surgery required to fix it. So... True confession, I'm not a fan of pain, just saying. I, I, I've had enough pain from being stupid the last three lifetimes. So one of my prayers is, Lord, please show me early. Please show me early so that I don't continue to do foolish, stupid, sinful things and dishonor you and not even know it. Because Brad can lie to Brad. As a matter of fact, Brad is the biggest liar to Brad of anybody. I lie to myself every single day. Without the Holy Spirit and the Word of God continuing to bring me in the line, continuing to shine the spotlight on and say, come back to here, come back to the baseline. That's why being in the Word every single day, praying, having an intimate relationship with your King every single day is the route to purity and holiness. We're going to summarize and then before Tom comes, we'll have a couple minutes for Q&A or, or commentary from, from you all. So if there's something on your heart, um, we'll have an opportunity to do that. First point, like cancer, sin starts small. Left unchecked, it will grow until it consumes you. Number two, you cannot stand and fight sexual temptation. If you do not flee, you will surely fall. Number three, trying to cover up sin or conceal sin always leads to more sin. Number four, God is a generous God. The cure for coveting is contentment with whatever God provides. And lastly, sin, even though forgiven, creates consequences that can last a lifetime. Thank you all for coming. Lord willing, we'll be here next week and we'll begin to look at David's family as a result of this. Now that you know. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.